Hello everyone, this is Shweb Khan here at Anti-Small Talk and today is our seventh episode in our Heroes Without Capes Voices From Within the Classroom podcast series. Over the past five or six episodes, we've been talking to our nation's educators, get to know them about their classroom practice, their pet peeves, things they love, things they love about teaching, things they don't necessarily love about teaching. Today I'm delighted to announce we have the wonderful Melanie, who goes by Melanie Gale, at Melanie Tutors with us today. I'm really excited. We have a fantastic conversation in store for everyone. Hello, Melanie, and welcome to Anti Small Talk. Hello, nice to be here. Yes, oh, it's fantastic having you. I think our initial conversation started where I saw you going through a feed on inclusivity and diversity. And I thought, there's someone I need to have on the podcast. So, Melly, for our listeners and, and, and people who tune into Anti Small Talk, um, who are you? Give us, uh, give us, tell us about yourself, your background. Okay, so I am, I suppose I'm an English language specialist. In, that was my degree. So I did my degree at uh, King's College and I did English language and communication. Um, which I find is, is kind of uncommon among English teachers. They tend to be literature specialists. Um, so then after that, I did the classic thing of thinking, I'm not going to be a teacher, I'm going to find something else to do. And so I ended up waitressing and uh, just filling time for a while before I accepted that, yes, I was going to have to be a teacher. That was clearly what I was meant to be doing. Um, so I did kind of teaching assistant, cover supervisor work for... I think about a year and a half before I actually started teacher training um, and so I'm based in London so all of my teaching experience has been inner city London schools mm. um, which is probably how we ended up coming across each other I guess because of that discussion of inclusion and diversity mm. which is so important but everywhere of course but especially in inner city London um, and then I have been teaching now eight years um which is not a great you know not a huge number in the scheme of things but to me sounds like a lot i think what else have i done consistently for eight years mm-hmm. no you're uh, absolutely right i think uh, we all often talk about numbers and statistics and everything i think what they're saying uh, most nqts drop out in their first five years 78 percent or something yeah. fact that, you know you're, you're in your eighth year i'm in my fifth year you know it doesn't really matter how long you've been in the profession is what you bring and the uh, so your longevity comes through the, the, your ability to stay enthusiastic and passionate about the subjects you love and working with those kids. No, I absolutely agree. And I think one of the one of the issues sometimes in the profession is because there is clearly a hierarchy, you know, of course there is um, within the management structure, but there also often becomes one of experience. Yeah. I think sometimes experienced teachers, you know, can be quick to dismiss the value of an NQT or a trainee. Um, and I always feel that I've learned both from people less experienced to me, less senior, and from those, of course, more senior, more experienced. No, absolutely. I've, I've spoken to, um, you know, for example, I speak to cover supervisors, TAs, cleaners. Same. Everyone's got a story. Everyone's going to enrich you with something. And I think me and myself and Oliver did the podcast not long ago. Uh, and he spoke about, you know, small interactions we have with people. The children pick up on that, how we, you know, mm-hmm. for example, drop off a box of glue sticks into a classroom or if we open a door for a member of staff. It's the small things we pick up on and, and, and having that professional courtesy extends beyond, you know, experience or years. You know, it's just having that across the board and being consistent with that. Yeah, I had in in my my old classroom, I had up, um, which was attributed to J.K. Rowling, although it's, while she wrote it, it's a quote from a character in uh, Prisoner of Azkaban. I think, um, I think, no, actually, I think it's maybe Goblet of Fire. It's Sirius Black, (laughs) Harry Potter. And he says, um, I might be getting this slightly wrong, but, you know, if you want to judge a man, um, look at how he treats his inferiors, not his equals. Um, and I always used to show that to students and say, you know, how you treat your friends is great, but how do you treat the year sevens, the, the students younger than you? How do you treat people who might be deemed your inferior? Do you treat them well um, rather than, you know, being kind to the people who might get you something, the people who are above you in some kind of hierarchy? No, absolutely. We're in a very much a transactional culture where we'll have conversations mm-hmm. with people because we because we feel as though they can provide us with an opportunity to, you know, for example, climb the career ladder. But, you know, I think that's when I knew myself and yourself initially started speaking. Uh, it was a couple of messages and I realised that there's no ego here. There's no uh, 
you know, wanting to, to, uh, uh, to start a conversation that's you know, going to put one of us or both of us on a pedestal. We just want to have a conversation about, you know, really yeah, about definitely. your story, which is really important. So, um, no, you're absolutely correct. And that extends onto our students, doesn't it, massively? Yeah, of course. And I think it's important um, that as teachers, we're not just teaching our subject. Mm. Um, we are teaching them how to be adults, how to behave in a, in a kind, in a professional manner. Um, I think that's, like you said, it's the little things they notice. You demonstrate that to them through everything you do. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Explicit teaching, perhaps. Absolutely. Navigating to the social world. So, Mel, you spoke about your natural trajectory, okay? So, I followed the, mm-hmm. you know, inverted commas natural trajectory myself. I went from being a TA, to, uh, from a student to a TA, TA to a cover supervisor, mm-hmm. cover supervisor did some supply, and supply went into teaching. So, um, Melanie, big question here for you, okay? Why did you choose to become a teacher? What was, was there one particular reason why you chose to, uh, to be a, become a teacher? I think, um, like you said, of that natural trajectory, I think, I, you know, I tried to think about this before the podcast. And for me, I think I can't remember not wanting to be a teacher. Um, so I can remember kind of as, you know, as young as, sort of, um, you know, four or five playing with friends, you know, the, the typical thing of wanting to play teacher. Um, and so I'd always just enjoyed teaching and learning. And um, my mum actually um, is a qualified teacher, but she never taught. So she um, she was of one of these, the classic kind of, you know, boom and bust that happens with qualifying as a teacher. They were desperate for teachers. Um, so she got onto a teacher training course, sort of, in, I guess, in the, in the 70s, uh, qualified. And by the time she qualified, everyone had qualified and there were no more teaching jobs. Um, so in a way, even though my mum, you know, wasn't a teacher um, as her profession, I think I've been surrounded by teachers if that makes sense and I can I can remember kind of year five and six thinking oh, I'd like to be a primary school teacher and then in secondary school thinking oh I'd like to be a secondary school teacher uh, and then getting to university and trying to reject that a bit thinking no I'm not going to teach I'm going to do something else I'm going to look into publishing I'm going to I don't know do anything it was like trying to fight it you know you feel like you have this destiny and you're thinking nope I'm going to do something different and of course I didn't I just ended up waitressing um after university and thinking I really should have done some work experience I should have built up some kind of CV rather than just enjoying three years of of learning really and and partying Oh, yeah, of course, the partying definitely comes part of it. I was quite fortunate where I commuted uh, uh, from my from my hometown to uni. I was quite fortunate where I never had uh, never the distraction. But studying, mm. I, just, I did it for love for the love of learning. And once I um, once I graduated, mm. um, did a few bit part jobs, and I thought I've, I want to do something that you know changes the world. And for myself mm. as well, being a teacher was something that you know it was, came quite late. You know, I was seventeen, eighteen when I I realised I wanted to do it. And I think that there are no regrets. You know, I've had uh, ups and downs mm. in our careers, don't we? And it's all about how we manage them. Certainly. And I think um, you mentioned there about a job that does good. I remember in that I had a sort of strange period after university. I almost felt like I was sort of in mourning for my education because you have this, again, this trajectory, don't you? You know, you go from primary school to secondary school to university and then no one tells you what happens next. And um, I had sort of this strange period. And I remember when I was sort of trying to mull over what do I want to do? I remember thinking, I don't want a job which is solely about the paycheck at the end of the month. I want something that um, provides me with a bit more than that, you know, so I can go home feeling proud of what I've done that day rather than just, I've done that that day and I'll get my money in a few weeks' time. No, you're absolutely right. It's that internal satisfaction, isn't it? So it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, really, it's one of those things where the hours that we do, they don't really marry with the salary we get. So anyone who actually teaches full-time, or in any capacity anyway, works in education, any capacity, you know, the money doesn't match the hours that we do, but we do it for those students and the people who do it for the right purpose and the right reasons, they shine through quite quickly. I think you see them, I think you, you can hear from them, you can see, and hear their voice, you can see it in their eyes as well. When you've got members of staff who are there for those students and not for their own per sense, sense of self-purpose or self-importance, those are the people we need to ally ourselves with because those are the ones, you know, who um, are there for the right reasons and, mm. and care about the, the profession itself rather than personal gain. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Um, I think I think that's one of the strengths of teachers. And I think it's also in an odd way, actually, one of the, the struggles of mm. teaching um, because you are often so dedicated to 
the students and you know you want them to learn you want them to do their best and I think teachers are commonly quite poor at putting themselves first yes and I do think I sort of hope actually I wonder if Covid will make any difference to that I don't know about you I've always found there's a bit of a culture of sort of presenteeism among teachers Mm -hmm. I remember once you know saying proudly that I'd you know done five or six years without a day off and it didn't mean I hadn't been ill in that time it's just that it was expected you come in every single day and I do hope that this kind of current climate where of course you shouldn't go in where you're ill you're going to you know affect other people I hope that might change things long term that people will be better about taking time off when they need it yeah. they absolutely correct this whole notion of teacher well-being which I think became prominent in 2018 Ofsted put into their framework yeah. uh, it became a hashtag it became something that people threw around books were written about it I'm very exactly. critical I'm very critical of many things in education but teacher well-being I'm very critical of because ultimately you know um, there's that whole that whole um, analogy people give of um, you know uh, um, it's gone out of my head now. That's something about um, you can't pour from a half. I don't know half. Yeah, I know what um, you mean. Yeah, like, yeah one of those things. Yeah. Like, um, you, you've got to have a sort of <laughs> a full teapot or whatever it is to be able to to pour out to other people. That sort of thing. Yeah. What if you don't like tea? Coffee. What if you don't like coffee? Lilt. I don't know which other one. I don't. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know which um, one. No, yeah. It's really easy as a teacher to think, oh, well, you know, my classes will suffer if I'm off or oh, I haven't got the energy to set cover. It's just easier to go in because I think we're all quite, I think teachers are often quite control freaks about their classroom and their learning. And I know how I felt sometimes if I had to have a day off, like the thought of going back into my classroom where someone's going to have moved my stuff yep. or you know, left books lying around. I think things like that can lead us to be, almost to feel that we are, you know, indispensable. We must be there. Mm, absolutely. Especially and in reality. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely right. <laughs> you alluded to the pandemic as well. Um, I think it's yeah. really important, you know, with self-isolations and, you know, this whole track and trace and stuff. If you're not feeling well, uh, sometimes, you know, although we, we put our students first, sometimes we've got to put our students first by taking, there's that saying, isn't there, from um, the film Million Dollar Baby starring Hilary Swank, Clint Eastwood, sometimes to throw a punch, you've got to take a step back. And I think as teachers, sometimes mm. we've got to take a step back during this pandemic and say, Do you know what, hold up, big picture, our family's important, our, our students are important, Absolutely. our well-being is important. I'd rather have a day off rather than have six months off with COVID. So it's yeah. that, that fine balancing act that teachers are now uh, finding themselves in and, I think this whole, again, this whole notion of teacher well-being, it needs to be analysed critically and saying that it's very individualised. So mainly your well-being perhaps are very different from mine. And my are very different from my line manager and from my, my TA. So they all vary from per and from sector to sector, higher education to secondary, secondary to primary to infants. It varies, you know, right across the board. So we really need to look at it with a sort of critical veneer and say, yeah, I've done this amount of work today. This is, this, is, this is what I've done today. I'm not going to yeah. do anything more than that. So I know teachers that, no, once they leave the building, I try and do that as well. Once I leave the building, I'm done for the day because I know yeah. my priorities are at home. But again, yeah. you, know, you feel that sense of guilt, don't you? that guilt trip comes in. It's not, it, we're very conscientious people. It's not our fault. We, we just want to mm -hmm. do well in our role. So it is a, it's a very fine balance and, and our goodwill can be exploited because of that as well. Oh, yeah. And I think that's the difficulty. I think it's the same of, um, I think there's a lot of similarities between, in my experience, um, nurses in the NHS mm -hmm. and teachers, because I think both professions, um, their goodwill can be, you, you know, used against them. I think, of course, nurses, it always comes up again and again that they're underpaid. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that one of the reasons that the NHS have been able to get away with that is it's such a vocation. Mm -hmm. If you feel called to nursing and you know you are a nurse, then you'll go to it anyway, no matter the pay. And I was at um, King's College London, which obviously a nursing training school as well. So I met lots of nurses and um, sadly, very few of them are still working full time for the NHS because, you know, eight years on, they're, they're burnt out, they're done and they can do better just by doing bank shifts once in a while than working full time. And I think it's often true of teachers too. Like you said, we don't typically come into this for the money um or the long holidays as some people like to think oh yeah like the daily mail for example but they've got their yeah. body you know they're currently after after marcus rashford which is i know um, that's a different story We're investing in property yeah, yeah absolutely yeah because you know yeah. clearly no politicians got a second home do you know what i mean clearly yeah yeah, yeah it doesn't happen does exactly, it? Yeah. yeah absolutely yeah. anytime someone steps out of their you know 
what they think is their, where they should be. You know, if a footballer, he should be on the football pitch. Oh, he's trying to campaign for politics. Let's bring him down a little bit. You know? Yeah, the whole idea that, you know, you know, it's not his job, but, you know, if, if the politicians did their job in levelling up this country properly, we wouldn't have kids starving, would we? So uh, it works mm. both ways, doesn't it? Um, it does work both ways. Yeah, certainly. Um, I don't know how we managed to get onto that. <laughs> We've got loads of questions to get through as well. No, but it's, it's, it's a good sign. We can, uh, yeah, we'll go on to that. Absolutely. Can... So, uh, Melanie, is there a particular teacher you remember at school who inspired you or uh, gave you the impetus and, uh, mm. and the energy and drive to become a teacher? Was there one or two teachers at school that yeah, you can I mean, remember? I did, um, I was thinking about this earlier, I sort of worried I was going to sound like one of those Oscars speeches, <laughs> you know, when they start reeling off literally everybody you know, who they've ever worked with and their mum and God. And, um, I did think, right, I need to narrow it down a little. And I got as far as narrowing it down to about six. So I still struggled. Um, but of those, I'll do my quick reel off just in case any of them happen to hear it. Um, but my primary school year five teacher, who was Mr. Wood. And then the others are all English and drama teachers, which okay. um, is perhaps unsurprising. So they were Miss Morrish, Mrs. Roy, um, my two drama teachers at sixth form who um, were adamant we didn't call them, you know, Miss and the surname. Mm. So I just knew them as Claire and Sean. Um, and actually the last one um, is a teacher who I was a cover supervisor, cover supervisor with. Mm. So she was a qualified teacher and I was not yet. And that's a good friend of mine, Sarah Young. Um, but the one I suppose if I had to pick out just, just one would be um, Miss Morrish, which is no longer her name. Um, I think uh, her surname is Howe now. And I remember a lot of her year 11 lessons um, in a way that I don't really remember. I don't know about you. I remember very little of, of secondary school now. Um, but I remember specific lessons of hers. I remember doing an inspector course. Yeah. Um, I remember doing To Kill a Mockingbird. And I remember the activities that she actually taught us. And yeah. we... So she taught me in year 10 and 11 um, and didn't teach me in sixth form. And for me, year 12 was the year when I did the classic, you know, go off the rails a little bit, mm. do well at GCSE, year 12, sudden step up. And I just, you know, went, I was lazy, if I'm honest. I just didn't do the work I needed. Um, and she kind of sort of picked up on that, even though she wasn't teaching me anymore and came and had a word with me and just said, you know, what's going on? Why are you not? being you know the Melanie I know and um, I was so touched by her investment in me I remember once she I'd said to her when handing in my homework oh it's you know it's not a very good essay like I had a bad weekend um, I can't remember why but later on in the day um, I was in another class and she knocked on the door and she'd marked my essay um, and it was it was good it was an A an A star and she wanted to come and tell me straight away because she knew I'd had a bad weekend and um, I suppose that stayed with me because it's what we're talking about there. She wasn't just teaching me so I could pass an exam. It was clear she actively cared about me as a student and me as a person. And that's the sort of thing that stays with you, I think. No, you're absolutely right. And that's a, a fantastic story, really loving as well. And I had a teacher called Mr. Lewis, um, who I've spoken to uh, with very various people about. And like you say, they're not, you don't remember the entire lesson, but you remember glimpses of lessons. So we had a lesson on goods and services. I'll never forget that. And he left, just left the room for 20 minutes. And I didn't, I didn't know where he was gone. Uh, and he came back, he goes, do you understand the difference of goods and services now? I was like, what do you mean? He goes, I've just provided you a service while being your teacher. And you were sat there with your computers, which are technically goods. I didn't know what to say. I was like, do you know what? I'll remember that forever. Of <laughs> something like that along those lines. But he was so eccentric and, and he, he showed a very personable side. Even doing our personal statements, he used to sit with us and, and ask us about things we enjoyed, things we didn't enjoy. Really that personal approach to teaching, which you yeah. probably know as well right now, Melanie, with how busy we are throughout the workday. Like me, when I go in on Tuesday, five lessons. Wednesday, five lessons. Thursday, three lessons. Friday, five lessons. I don't have time to breathe. Literally, I'm from one end of the school to the other, you know, uh, duties, lunchtime, etc. Um, you don't get that necessarily, necessarily get that amount of time. But I think back then, I think many people tell me before the Gove years, you know, 20, 20, before 2010, mm -hmm. that's when I was beginning to leave school. Back then, I just felt as though teachers were able to make those power. I'm not saying they can't now, but there was more of an opportunity and time yeah. to do that. No, I do. As you talk about kind of the Gove years, and of course, I... So I finished university in 2010. I literally finished my dissertation 
the day that the the Cameron government was formed. Wow. Because um, I was, funnily enough, I was writing about uh, Tony Blair for my dissertation. Okay. Um, so it was particularly interesting to me. I even wrote it in my conclusion, that, you know, I was finishing it on the day of a new government. So I have only taught under conservative governments. And of course, I was at school myself under a Labour one. Um, and I do wonder how much of my, my memory of school um, you know, is accurate because, of course, I wouldn't have known what pressures they were under. Mm. You know, you're quite blind, aren't you, as a student, to the realities of even. I think you even forget your teachers have other classes who aren't you. Yep. Um, definitely, definitely, um, definitely. Yeah, I do wonder if it would have been, you know, how different it would have been to have qualified, you know, ten years ago compared to when I did. No, you're absolutely right. I think one thing is now I'm a I'm a Tony Blair I'm a Blair baby. You know, I grew up on you know. Um, you know, grew up in short start centres, you know, uh, mm. the EMA, aim higher, EMA, you name yeah. it. we were part of all those objectives and ideas, you know, and uh, I remember when 2020 hit, 2010 hit, and I was finishing off sixth form, so I left in 2011, when I went back into the classroom in 2013 on doing a bit of TA work, you could see the changes in education, you could see the mm. sort of demeanour of staff as well, and you know, I know a lot of people, you know, um, there are people out there who, who praise Michael Gove and his ideas and, mm. and everything, and it's based on his veneer of standards, you know, um, really yeah. you look at in terms of ideology, the ideology behind current government practice is about micromanagement, it's about this cookie cutter approach to teaching that myself and other guests yeah. have spoken about, this idea that there's one so yeah. what an objective really. way of teaching every single class and that's how every teacher should be now a lot mm. of damage has been caused over the past 10 years and we can look at that if we look at the the the, the our retention and recruitment crisis you know Absolutely. they might not have been caused by directly caused by the gov years but there must be a byproduct of them considering the fact that you know our schools are struggling even till this very day with funding and to and to resource mm. and, and and staff their schools because even the school i work at currently sometimes you know uh, it's, it's a struggle between affording a supply teacher or making sure your students have got resources. And that shouldn't be the case in a country that's, you know, the sixth richest country in the world. It should never be the case. What a time to be alive. And I think um, I've really found that in different schools I've worked at, the amount of money each school seems to have is just wildly different. It is. Um, one school I worked at, we didn't have enough copies of Mice and Men at all, as in, so the year 11 class that I was in, we had to share one copy of Mice and Men between two students. But that wasn't even that year 11 class's set because I also shared that same set with the year 10 class. And this was a school where students couldn't afford their own copies. So, you know, what chance did they have for preparing for an exam in their own time? You know, this was, this was a good while back. I mean, this was 2011, 2012-ish. Um, and then when I moved to another school and I couldn't believe they had these book cupboards, you know, full of hundreds of copies of all kinds of different texts and even stuff as basic as coloured paper. I remember saying to a colleague at that school, oh, you know, there wasn't any coloured paper at our last school and they thought I was joking. And I was like, no, really, we didn't have a cupboard of resources. It just didn't exist. Um, and I think that as assume is a product of the kind of academization mm. move to schools having to sort of deal with their own money um and of course you know the, the realities of pupil premium and how that gets spent and so on of course absolutely i think one thing is man you approach you've just approached in a very apolitical way you're not overtly out there critiquing you know political policy you're looking at the uh, impact it has on us as teachers and our students. And that's mm -hmm. what teachers should be doing. Ultimately, you know, some of us may have a stake in the matrix and, you know, um, you know, uh, contracts, D of E, et cetera, whatever, whatever floats your boat, that's great for you. That's absolutely wonderful. But at the end of the day, our students are the ones that are suffering by a lack of funding. I've been to schools mainly yeah. where there's been uh, Amazon wish list for toilet paper. I've been at schools where a col uh, colored printing, was, my students were literally in awe. Their jaws were dropping at colored printing. They couldn't believe that. And like I say, you know, it's the, it's the fifth, sixth richest country in the world. You know, what a time to be alive that, you know, our children are in awe of you know, colored paper. It's, uh, and even our staff are struggling to, to make ends meet. You know, the number of mm. teachers that I know, for example, that may use food banks or um, mm. are struggling to pay their mortgages, you know. Yeah. Uh, being a teacher, is a, it's a very tough existence and we've got to unite together in, 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 in every way possible if we can. It is, it is. And um, I think um, one person I'll sneak in and give a shout out here is, I don't know if you know Emma, who runs um, Money Savvy Teacher. 
I think I know her. I think I may have come across yeah, her. Yeah, so she, I can't remember how I originally sort of came across her, but she posted what I thought was a really good um, kind of blog article on why you shouldn't spend your own money on resources. Um, because we all do, you know, I don't think I've met a teacher who has not spent, you know, a penny of their own money on prizes or class resources or things. And um, she, it's a good piece to look at it about um, what you can do instead. So it's not saying, you know, don't spend money at all ever. Mm. It's sort of looking at ways you can get around that rather than, because we sort of plug the funding gaps with our own wallets. We do, um, we do, we do. Now I bought once on um, eBay, I bought about 20 different copies of Othello because um, the ones that we had at that school were the really, you can see don't teach English, but there's some very cheap editions of Shakespeare, mm. which are great in the sense that they're cheap, um, but they're so tiny and they have that kind of thin paper. You can't actually write anything on it. Mm. Um, and they're no use to teach from. And that was the option the school presented. Like, here are your copies of Othello. And I knew it wouldn't be useful to teach from. So I spent about 30 quid just buying secondhand copies that I liked. Um, and did I take them when I left? Of course I didn't, you know. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. So, honestly, Melanie, I, I work with a member of staff. Um, I want to shout him out, actually. I'm not sure if I should mention his last name, but I mentioned his first name, Ian. He knows who he is. He's a big, big listener, anti small talk, always messages me as well. Oh, Ian and I were doing our PGC together and um, he began to work in a very deprived school in Leicestershire. And uh, mm. he said to me, Shrab, we've got no uh, history books in our class, in, in one of our cupboards, none at all. And like, well, yeah. how are you going to address that? Like, I've asked for funding. They said they're not enough funding. So he literally would spend his own money. So he sold his car and the money he got from his car, he literally stacked up his classroom. So I'm not sure how much he sold his car for. And he used to walk to work and it was about two miles. So he used to, and he, he, he literally dedicated, poured everything into that, into, into his job. Yeah. And this is a small sacrifice. I think time is the biggest sacrifice that we make, but the financial mm. sacrifice needs to be considered and looked at as well, because mm. you're right, you know, Christmas time, I've got a massive habit of spending loads at Christmas time. You know, I want my students to have some sort of Christmas party if they're not able to celebrate on mm. birthdays, you know, um, even things like, you know, um, when you're handing out sweets and stuff, I have that mm. really bad habit of just going mm. to the shop and buying stationery because my students haven't got it or folders. Mm. So I think you're right. We fill, we plug those gaps and we mm. shouldn't have to. Yeah, and I think once you get into the habit, you know, of, oh, you know, it's just it's just a pound, it's just a fiver, oh, I can't be bothered to claim back, you know, expenses for, you know, the travel to a CPD and stuff like that. You, you know, it's, I think, um, I remember when I was um, training, I was living with a friend of mine who's in computing, and um, he couldn't believe when I was buying, like, biscuits, uh, coffee and tea to take into work, and I was like, oh, I'm on the rotor this week, and he was like, rotor? And I was like, well, yeah, it's my turn to buy stuff for the department. And then, you know, it rotates. And he was like, we just have a fridge of everything we want. Mm. And um, he wouldn't dream of not claiming back his expenses. You know, it's just a different expectation in the private sector. I think we often feel guilty about claiming back expenses, you know. And um, I think talking to him made me realise, actually, that, you know, just how I was encouraging the problem by, you know, funding things with my own money. It's one of those things we implicitly do that, don't we? Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. Uh, Melly, got a couple more questions here for you, okay? Um, just a fascinating discussion. We can just talk about funding for ages. That is a discussion <laughs> within itself. Um, so, Melly, how would you describe your teaching style? I know people have got their own sort of, you know, yeah. way of doing things. How would you describe your teaching style? Yes, oh, it's such a difficult one. So I know there's become quite a thing recently, um, I suppose, debate on Twitter. I've seen lots of people doing this. I'm traditional or I'm progressive or I'm trad progressive or progressive okay. or this sort of dichotomy which I've never found speaks to me particularly I think my teaching style has has, has matured and has developed across my career I think um, partly the school I was at um, you know where I qualified um, was very assessment focused it was all um, can we push the GCSE down, you know, to year seven, year eight, year nine? And I think, so initially I was that kind of teacher. Everything is about the exam because that was what I had grown in and been shown, you know. It was constantly, does the learning objective meet the activities, you know, and is the learning objective something that is going to help them for their future education? Um, and I come across quite a lot of those people on Twitter, actually. Mm. But I feel I've really moved on from that. I think... Um, I had a sort of breakthrough. I can't, can't remember exactly when, maybe 
a few years into teaching when I was just like, you know, what are you doing so focused on the exams? Um, I think I was thinking back to my own education and I remember very little of being assessed. Um, I'm sure somebody taught me at some point how to write an essay and talked about the assessment objectives for English literature GCSE. But what I remember really um, is the education itself. I remember the stories. I remember the books we were taught. Um, I remember, like you said, you know, these odd moments with teachers. And um, it really led me away from thinking I was a teacher focused on exams and assessment. And it's not uh, that I'm critical of those you know, teachers who do choose that. I think especially in um, the kind of schools I think you and I have worked in, sort of inner city where students are more deprived, perhaps, in terms of their wider knowledge. I think you can often feel I've got to give them the education that's going to get them the GCSEs because the GCSEs will get them somewhere in life. And I can understand that choice. But for me, I think I've moved to really understanding education as something much more broad that often what I'm teaching might not explicitly ever come up on an exam. They might never need it um, in that sense, but they will learn something from it. And um, I think that was really freeing for me and sort of, you know, reignited my love for my subject and for um, for my career. I think if I'd continued being that person, like, you know, the starter must be some kind of exam skill and everything must be exam focused, I would have bored myself eventually. No, you're absolutely right. I think we have this tendency of stick rigid, very rigidly sticking to learning objectives, do now starters mm-hmm. and plenaries. And I think you're right, liberating yourself from that is really important. I, I'm, I'm, I left school in 2011. I don't remember doing a single assessment in class. Hand mm. on heart. I, I, maybe I was too blind to just did it quietly and, and got on with it. But I can't ever remember getting feedback or my teachers marking it or having yeah. to, you know, do feedback in a dip. If someone said to me, should I write in purple? I would have lost the plot. I mean it. I used to write in red and black. Those are my two colours. Red were for teacher notes. Black was for my own notes. And those only two, if someone asked me to do feedback in a different coloured pen, I'd go ballistic. I didn't. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be able to comprehend it. My, you know, my my teenage mind wouldn't be able to comprehend that. But we we're now flipping between highlighters, coloured pens. What's the impact this having on students? And where are these ideas? Where do these ideas come from? Where are they mandated? So you have to even look at that critically as well. I'm not saying you know there's not any sort of um, you know no, there's no sort of like in you know, value behind these things. No, of course. But overdoing them and repeating yeah. them repeatedly. Uh-huh. It, it kills the process of doing any sort of teaching force. It makes teaching very a monotonous, repetitive activity. Yeah, and I think what you mentioned earlier about these, you know, there is no one size fits all for teaching applies there. I think the kind of marking policies that are very prescriptive, you know, you must mark with this code and you must use this colour for this and this for that, um, often are just detrimental because I remember teaching a class, for example, who had really, really low reading ages. Um, you know, I'm talking year nine students with, you know, a reading age of six or seven. Um, and I was required to have written feedback in their books. And I was doing it one evening and I thought, they can't read this. I'm going to sit down with them and read it to them. Why am I writing it for somebody else? And there's that realisation, I think, for me, having sort of grown up, grown up, as it were, you know, matured as a teacher in the Ofsted years of marking policies. Oh, there is no marking policy, but... We have to see your books and schools becoming quite worried about it. That I began to realise I was often marking for an imagined observer or for an imagined senior leader, an imagined Ofsted inspector, rather than the, the child in front of me. And um, I know there's lots out there now, of course, about why written feedback is often completely ineffective anyway. Um, and I think the moment I decided to sort of choose, right, I'm marking for the child in front of me. And if that means... There's not a single word on the paper in my handwriting. That's fine. If I believe they got good feedback, then I'm happy with that. No, you're absolutely right, man. I taught a class once where it was predominantly boys. Uh, I mean, this is a stereotypically boy class. They were mm-hmm. very difficult. They're like a, a group of football fans they were at times. Uh, if they right. didn't like you, they, just, they, they got rid of you. And initially, I was trying to do the, this whole school feedback approach with them of, marking this coloured pen response. And then one of the kids just now said to me, said to me, Sir, what is the purpose of this? We're not gaining anything. We're wasting an hour of learning. Why can't we do a debate or an activity? I sat back and spoke to my head of department the next day. 
I said to her, you know, Gemma, I know she listens to my podcast. So I said, Gemma, this isn't working. Let's try something totally different. She said, what do you propose? And I said, they don't like written feedback. Why don't we do something peer-based? She's like, okay, give it a go. I gave it a go that failed as well. It's a constant repetitive trial and error thing. But yeah. you know, this, this, really whole notion, this whole notion of feedback, not marking and everything, again, it's, uh, it's, very, it's, 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 it's geared towards your crowd, isn't it? And mm. towards your audience. If you're working, you know, I don't know, rural Buckinghamshire, for example, you're not going to have the same marking policy as inner city London, are you? It varies yeah. from the crowd that you have. Like in a grammar school, for example, their marking policy may be, you know, tick and flick. There might be simply mm. odd word of feedback in some schools where even the idea, mentally, when you've got marking pupil premium books first. Why? I don't understand it. I don't understand the, the purpose of that or giving them extra feedback. Now, those children just need equal access and that doesn't mean you mark the hell out of their work no it's a i think i've always been quite anti-pupil pupil premium at the classroom level i think it's one of those things because it used to be the free school meals yep. student that was the you know the term when i first started and i always found it one of those things that it's worth knowing mm. but i don't necessarily think it's for a classroom teacher to do anything about i think that that sort of data is is better looked at in a much, um, of course, you're the sociologist, a much larger picture. Of course. You know, let's look at free school meals students or pre premium schools across the whole school mm. because that kind of data within one class is too small a sample. Um, and I've since heard of things, of course, it might all be the sort of rumour of Twitter, but, you know, like you said, pupil premium books being marked first or stickers to mark them out on, you know, their exercise books. And... It just seems like a complete misunderstanding of the problem and the reason there's extra funding mm. for these students is not because they need different marking in their books. Of course, absolutely. Yeah. Melanie, if you'd asked me, I was a free school meal child, EAL, um, I was, uh, if you'd have said to me, Shrab, um, if a teacher said to me, I'm going to mark your book in a different colour for everyone else, I'm going to mark your book out in front of everybody else, it's going to look mm. different, it's going to, I've even heard of schools create having separate exercise books for people, premium kids, even separate coloured folders. If I had had that, I would have panicked. I do not want that as a, as a disadvantaged child. As a disadvantaged child, I wanted the same access as everybody else. I want the same opportunities as everybody else. And you're right, as a social societal level problem, we will not make the world a more equal place, if that's what we're looking for. We will yeah. not make the world an equal place by marking in a different coloured pen. No. Equalise access. And social mobility in this country has been stunted for what? Best part of, you know, 50, 60 years. You know, we've not had any, you know, high end social mobility apart from the odd one or two people, but uh, who are in prominent positions of power. So mm. if we're looking at people, like you said, unless you're going to talk about big picture, you know, don't mark my book in a different colour. It makes me, it'll make, no. me, makes me feel very yeah. left out and very, uh, it singles me out. And I don't want that. And I think yeah. the whole reopening schools debate, which I think you might have caught over the summer, oh, disadvantaged children are falling behind. They've been falling behind for 10 years you know Gavin mm. Williamson honey you know they've been falling behind for 10 years mate it's been a very long time you know even before that if you want to if you want to support them give them equality of opportunity equalize mm. funding given yeah, make, sure, make sure we address the teacher retention and recruitment crisis I could go on and on no and you mentioned EMA earlier and for me um that made a huge difference of course. you know I, those who don't remember it the educational maintenance allowance gave sixth form students essentially a weekly wage for going to platform and for me I, so I didn't for you know these, these odd funding things about whether it was the previous year or things like that so I didn't get it in year 12 um, but I got it in year 13 and for me as a you know 17 year old it didn't explicitly play, pay for like books I needed for my courses but for me what it meant was it was money for petrol so I lived in a rural area I drove to school mm. um, and if I didn't get the money for petrol from EMA, where I was getting it from in year 12 was a part-time job. And in year 12, I worked sometimes, you know, 20, 30 hours a week waitressing. And then in year 13, I obviously wanted to, you know, knuckle down. As I said, I didn't have a great year 12. And so I only worked one shift a week. And the difference was EMA. And who knows, maybe I wouldn't have got the same, you know, strong A-level results if I hadn't have had that bit of financial support and unfortunately things like that now seem to be dismissed as so if you know it's a communist policy you know or we shouldn't be paying children to go to school and or they don't need it they're going to waste it mm. absolutely um, those, those that 30 pound it was 30 pound a week it was yeah, uh, it, yeah. Was, it was 15 pound to get a bus from uh 
this uh, area we lived in to, to the school, £15 on the bus, £10 we spent on lunch, and £5 we left over we'd save. And after every 10 weeks, I'd go to WH Smiths and buy revision guides and, and, and paper and pens and, and bits and bobs that I needed to support me in my studies. Even things like, you know, a coat and stuff like that. You'd save those £5 to build up. That was, honestly, that was, um, for me, that was, uh, it was huge. That £30 being paid into my account every week was was enormous and you know from a from a background of you know um a very underprivileged background you know from a uh, in in inner city you know for children like me it was the difference between having having something to eat that day and not and not having anything to eat at all and i think um you mentioned that transport and for for me so this was in the era of leaving school at 16 if you wanted to we had school buses paid until we were 16 and then for sixth form you're on your own you know, if you want to buy a bus pass from the, the school travel company, it was very expensive. Yes. If you want to buy one from like the local buses instead, very expensive. And so, of course, we were wanting to learn to drive. So that's where, you know, in, in that community, it was very much about your parents saving up money, you know, across your childhood to get you a secondhand car because you needed it to get to school. And then I think people can often forget about those in rural areas can be deprived, too. Of course, of course, absolutely. The one school, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right, Melanie. When I did a, like my first, my NQT, it was in a deprived rural area, and I never realised the deprivation until I, uh, until I left. I, uh, it hit me by storm. I was thinking it can't be poor out in the suburbs, but you look the employment opportunities, the, um, the sort of you know the, the attitudes of local people. You know, there's there's not that there's not that level of aspiration there because they don't see the aspiration, not allowed to have access mm-hmm. to that aspiration. Yeah, and I, I know there has been a sort of renewed um focus on that i think more people are commenting on of course you know seaside towns mm. um and the quality of schools in those can be can be quite poor and is forgotten about mm. um and i grew up not far from great yarmouth um where i know there's a um i can't i think it might just be called great yarmouth academy i know there's a school there that's really trying to sort of turn around the life chances of these young people who are in a seaside town where there doesn't there's not visibly a lot of opportunity which of course makes it really, really difficult, doesn't it? It makes it uh, nigh on impossible to to gain that sort of, you know, um, those aspirations. Absolutely. So, man, we've got the last couple of questions here for you because I think we 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 really managed to talk go completely off topic. Actually, you know, to be fair. Um, so, Melanie, quick quick one for you. Okay, so back to your sort of like profession. Okay, um, yeah. professional. Uh, so, in your in your career, what has been your proudest moment so far? Proudest mm. moment. Also, let me double up on that. And your most yeah. challenging moment as well. Okay. Is it uh, the typical kind of teacher thing? I can think of the challenging more quickly than the proudest. So I'll go with that first and the proudest country. For me, um, the most challenging decision for me was to leave the classroom. Mm. Um, so as I kind of alluded to earlier, I'm not um, a classroom teacher at the moment. I'm working for myself, um, doing private tuition. And I have been since, since March. Um, although typically, of course, I've decided to change my mind a bit. I'm going to go back uh got a new school i'm starting part-time in january um but for me that was a really hard decision um because like i mentioned i'd sort of followed that natural trajectory i was a teacher and i'd sort of attempted the route of going up towards middle leadership and then thought "Mm, this isn't for me i I want to be in the classroom so i'd sort of come back down the ladder and then um was stuck for a bit it was like what's next then if i don't want to be a head of department head of year you know, member of SLT, what do I want to do? Um, and that was really challenging for me to make that decision. I had a lot of, you know, chats with other colleagues, people outside of teaching, um, that's about coaching. And someone said to me, um, you know, you need to be the CEO of your own life. And, um, and it was kind of, you know, it's sort of a throwaway phrase, but it's really stuck with me because I, like I, yeah, I felt as a teacher, I was not CEO of my own life. I'd let the classroom become the CEO of my life, you know, let the school become that. And, um, you know, in an odd way, I'd sort of fallen into a system where I wasn't actually in control of a lot of what I did day to day. And it was a big leap, you know, to decide, okay, I'm going to leap off. I haven't got, I haven't got a job offer. I'm not doing anything. Um, And I'd built up this, you know, tutoring part-time from September 2019 so just over a year now I've been doing this but gradually built up and then made that that leap and of course the pandemic uh came at 
a sort of strange time for me because I already was due to leave a job you know, then and then um, suddenly everybody is off school and obviously online tuition um, has had a real boom since then which has been great for me um, because I actually turns out I quite love working from home um, but fickle person that I am like I said I am going back in January part-time and I think I'm going back as a very different person I think I've learned a great deal from this time away from the classroom things we were talking about there you know about teacher well-being I don't think I'm going to be the same teacher that I was when I left my last job I think I've got a renewed sense of that work-life balance and what a job is and what my life is and where that line you know meets. Uh, proudest is a tough one um I think my I don't know if it's definitely it but it's the one that comes to mind I had a year seven tutor group in my NQT year so did um, I so did I and they're amazing aren't they yeah I, and I I remember being a bit taken aback when they were given to me because I knew from cover supervised training year seven tutor group what a lot of work mm. um you know everybody knows that you know there's a real it's a struggle it's a transition for them and they need you in a way that you know your year nine tutor group might not um but I stuck with them from year seven through the end of year 11 I wow you know, that's amazing yeah and I, I sort of decided part way through I'm not going to go until they go mm. and um and I you know I I loved working with them you know to see young people really grow you know across that five years you know what it's like you know the little you know the little babies that come in in year seven and then you know you stand there at their uh their graduation from year 11 and um it really is you know it's I, I feel privileged to have had that opportunity to see them from seven to eleven in in that year group i think one other tutor was with me at the same time you know as an as an nqt and he also took them through to year 11 but we had i think two or three different heads of year in that time lots of other tutors came and went and i um yeah i mean i, I loved them to bits they were so badly behaved in year seven like it was it was a bit of an on-running joke that you know miss canane's tutor group or oh, seven cna oh. and um they were so much work but they were also that classic kind of rewarding thing you know students who who came to me with all kinds of good news and bad news and problems and joys across that time and in fact um the first one of them i believe anyway has just had a baby two weeks oh, ago wow, that's yeah so that was and then you know to find out you know that she's 18 and came to let me know she's she's pregnant she's having a baby and you know it's that thing i think often as a teacher you know it's not it's that uh, it's you know it's not necessarily the job description but you do become a bit of a parent in a sort of maybe more of like an aunt perhaps you know um you do end up building these relationships and you know i've got many you know, academic achievements that were, you know, the sort of things you'd mention at performance management of classes who did well or, um, you know, things that I did. But I think, you know, just seeing those students, you know, finish year 11 and um, some of them, you know, I didn't think would. Some of them I thought would be, uh, you know, wouldn't have made it to the end of year 11. So I think the relationship I have with them, you know, is perhaps one of my proudest achievements across across my career. No, that's incredible. I had a, that is incredible. I had a year seven form class. I only had my NQT year because my my I got moved across to the main trust school. But in that year, there was so much. Um, they went from being these really doe-eyed, innocent kids to having <laughs> a little bit of cheek about them, where they'd get in a bit of trouble. Then you you go from being like uncle to dad, dad to teacher, teacher to friend, yeah, and social worker. Yeah, I see them twice a day, so in the morning and at the end of the day. Mm. So I used to have them forty minutes a day. I did, and even parents' evenings. I used to love. I used to look forward to them, and um, they, yeah, they, it's, you it's, get to know the parents. You know, that's the other thing across that five years. Mm. You've seen the same parent. Um, you know this many times and one of them um gave me the, the you know present from from the mum gave me this lovely like engraved uh, brandy glass uh you know kind of acknowledging our thing you know thanks for putting up with my son for five years and um it really is there's the relationships you know it gets thrown about but it really is the relationships that make for me that make teaching so enjoyable of course you know i, I love my subject and i love 
the academic side but if I just loved my subject in the academic side I think I'd be teaching in universities you know absolutely right. I love the young people mm. and working with them you're absolutely right there are so many teachers out there with great subject knowledge and they're wonderful at what they do but they can't get the social side of teaching right and i know many of them yeah. i finished my pgc with and uh, you could tell quite quickly actually they were struggling with the social side of it there is that mm. more holistic social side that we we have of teaching and it's not a failure if you don't get it you know you're good at something and you might not be good at something you may just reflect and change on that but uh, i think you know i think if you're there for the right purposes and you can support those children and and watch them develop and grow that that that's uh, and blossom you know that's uh, that's a true teacher that is yeah and i think schools need teachers of all types you know i've worked with teachers who i've really admired and thought wow they're so so good at, at this that I can't do you know um, my um, my partner's a teacher as well actually and he um, is uh, far more qualified than me has a master's partway through a PhD and he does these amazing lessons where he can just sort of give a lecture off the top of his head he's got such phenomenal subject knowledge um, and I admire it but it's not something I can do or necessarily want to do and I think schools need departments certainly anyway I think need a mixture of teachers who've got different strengths because you do learn from each other and you do students of course I think benefit from seeing teachers of different types you know what works for one class might not work for another or for an individual yeah absolutely right it's that sort of differentiation between the two absolutely absolutely mm. but I'm just very conscious of time I don't want uh, yeah. to go over way too much okay otherwise you know um yeah I don't want to go away too much, okay? yeah I'm just conscious of time okay so Melanie your two pet peeves about teaching two things you really dislike okay uh data is number one yep, so um hate it yeah well. yep. um and oh so it's data and it's I quite a broad thing but um teacher kind of uh i don't know how to put it actually the sort of infighting that isn't yeah. beneficial to each other and the profession i think there's a lot of oh this is what i do in my classroom and i'm correct and i've got it and if you're not doing this what are you doing you're an embarrassment and i think i saw somebody on twitter post this thing you know actually we should be saying this is what works for me in my setting with this class at the moment you know it's not you must all do this now and i think you know, I, I love teaching. I've said to you before that Twitter's been really beneficial for my teaching. But there can be a lot of um, that kind of infighting. If I've found the answer, and if you're not doing it my way, then you've got it wrong. And I think, like you said, there's no one way that works for everyone. And I think we do best just to listen to each other and go, oh, that's great. Wouldn't work for me, but great that you're doing it. And, you know, vice versa. Absolutely, absolutely. People give me advice on my teaching, on, on my school, etc. And I said to them, can you come and spend a day with me in my context? And then we can really discuss it. And, yeah, and that would be great. You know, I got into, I fell into a biscuit stone hedge, uh, you know, debate on Twitter. Mm. Um, what I don't know why I do it to myself. I know it's going to end badly. And I think you know, so people saying, well, they learned nothing. They learned nothing. And I thought, well, they can't have learned nothing. Mm. You know, primary school children are constantly learning. It doesn't mean it's what the objective was to learn facts about Stonehenge, but they must have learned teamwork they must have learned fine motor skills you know they might well remember that better than they remember what the stones are made of absolutely you know? absolutely absolutely correct and i think sometimes you know we've got to give ourselves that leeway and it, it, again you know if I've, I've seen teachers work in special educational needs schools sen schools mm. their teaching styles very radically different from mine i'm not yeah. in a position to critique that that's their context mm. if it works for them and their kids yeah. and, they've got, and, they're, and they're doing it well and they're enthusiastic mm. about it and they're getting results from it who are we to critique one another? We should be supporting one another. We can pinch ideas from each other. Yes, definitely. I mean, just briefly, absolutely shout out to SEN teachers. My um, stepdaughter is profoundly disabled and I'm amazed at the patience, the resilience, the tenacity of these staff who, you know, some student, you know, some teachers might look at, you know, my stepdaughter and think, well, she can't really do anything, so let's just leave her be. Um, but they just try and again and again and they constantly look for new things and one of the joys for me actually of her bubble closing was the shift to online teaching um, just getting to see how they work with her and um, yeah so huge shout out to SEN teachers they are absolutely phenomenal 
they are absolutely incredible. The patience, the dedication, the hard work they put in, it's mm. uncanny. It's uh, it's unparalleled. It's absolutely incredible. Okay, yeah. so Melanie, just to finish off, okay, last two questions for you, okay? Yeah. As this is Heroes Without Capes, um, voices from in the classroom, have you got a favourite superhero and why is this person your favourite superhero? Do you know, I struggled with this question because you, you might hate me this. I really, I'm not into superhero films. I really struggle with it and cartoons. I don't really hate um, you for that. C cartoons are cool, like Hong Kong Fuyu yeah. and stuff. Those, those I kind of like, oh, I sneak around it. Maybe I can say the Powerpuff Girls. Because okay. um, I, you know, I remember as, um, you know, I've got two best friends, two best female friends, and the three of us loved these kind of, the fact it was, you know, three women who were not, forced to kind of become to be they were presented as strong females without having to take on stereotypically male characteristics you know they're very feminine but also they are brilliant at being superheroes so i think that's it for me powerpuff girls not we'll cool one, okay powerpuff girl first time ever but that's, that's that. well, well, you, can, you can you can have that it's fabulous okay yeah. so melanie okay you know you know i love music you know i share music you know i share bangers uh what is on your playlist Gosh, do you know what's on my playlist at the moment? Um, it's November and I've snuck in the Christmas music already. Christmas music, not a problem. I, don't, I, don't, I think I was listening to E17 yesterday. That's not too bad. Uh, E17, that, that is a banger. That is a banger. So other than that, though, um, Vehicle Ides of March is a um, 1970s album, which if you listen to, you'll recognise bits from it because um, Aloe Black, King is Born, um, samples from it okay if you can if you remember the kind of horns in the back of that that's what the album the whole album is like um, and they do like a cover of Eleanor Rigby the Beatles one but that's kind of all horn focused um, so yeah that's what I was listening to yesterday so that's a much cooler answer than the Michael Bublé Christmas album which is okay. also true any bands in particular? Anything in the nineties you might listen to? Any nineties, um, yes, wasn't it? Um, 90s for me, REM. Love a bit of REM. REM are cool. I don't know shiny happy people. That's a pretty uh, good one. Manic Street Preachers. Yeah, not bad, not bad. Yeah, I've got time yeah. for them. Yeah. Um, uh, Pulp, of course, an absolute favourite of mine. Um, I love Jarvis Cocker, possibly a bit too much, actually. Um, but the other 90s, you know, realistically, I was in primary school in the 90s and who I loved most, most of all, was S Club 7. S Club 7 are amazing. You know, there's no no party like an S Club party. We all know exactly. that. And, you know, the um, the new, some, my sceptre was just started secondary school in September and one of her new school songs is Reach and they play it every day uh, for the students. And I was like, excellent. Now I've got an excuse to play it to her at home. Fantastic. That's an incredible song, you know, that's an incredible, they're an incredible group, you know that, they, they, they bring yeah, some I mean, I, I genuinely loved them, I remember that, you know, the TV show Miami 7, and I remember buying each of their singles and the album. Wow, and, um, that's that dedication. Yeah, I think I was, that was possibly my first pop obsession, and there were many more to follow, but that was possibly the first one that was my own, as opposed to something that, you know, I'd gained from my parents or my sister. Yeah. Um, that was my first, I think, that was my obsession. That's, that's, yeah, I'll give S Club a pretty cool, to be fair. Yeah, I'll give you that. Yeah, you've got some, you've got quite, I think you're like me, you've got quite eclectic music taste. Me, I listen to everything. Yeah, I, you know that I listen to everything. Yeah, I think there's there's a couple of areas I don't know a lot about of or don't really stray into. Um, but I'm always happy to give things a go. Yeah, that's uh, the most important thing, isn't it? Same with me. I think a lot of people say to me, you know, for... Uh, like growing up and stuff, they said, "Oh, you must have listened to a lot of rap music." I go, "Yeah, I listen to a lot of everything." To be honest with you, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't have one particular type of music that I listen to more than the others. But as long as, as long as you can dance to it, not that I dance, <laughs> as long as you can dance to it, uh, then then it's a banger for me. Yeah, for me, it's upbeat music. I think um, I remember my partner saying to him, "I made a playlist for him once, and I was going through quite a bad time um, at the time. I had sort of." I was, struggling with my mental health and he was like even though you're down at the moment this is all quite upbeat music and I was like you know I actually don't really listen to downbeat music and mm. he's a huge Nick Cave fan and I jokingly went through and made a playlist called not so gloomy Nick Cave like finding all the <laughs> upbeat numbers 
Listen, no, 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 that's a that's a playlist. I think we need to share at some stage. With some yeah, I'm gonna send that to you. Oh, fabulous! Thank you. Now, honestly, man, it's been absolutely wonderful having an anti-small talk. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to this, okay? This is a wonderful educator, someone stepping back into the classroom, a real, a real a library of knowledge, and someone I think we all need to follow uh, and support uh, in, in our work. She's an incredible human being as well. I met her on Zoom. Uh, this is an educator we should all be following. So make sure you give her a follow. Uh, and uh, I'll leave I'll leave your uh, handle in our Spotify bio as well. But yeah, mm-hmm. Melanie, it's fantastic. Thank you. Now, I'm really touched and I've, um, I feel really honoured to have been invited on and um, had the chance to meet you and just, you know, talk about what we both love, really. Yeah, teaching general stuff and the 90s music. And 90s music, you know. I hope you're listening to S Club this evening. I think I'm listening to S Club. What am I currently listening to? I think I'm listening, I, I know what, I've been listening to Lisa Loeb pretty much on repeat for Ooh. weeks now. Like, Stay for me is a beautiful song. I don't think it gets the recognition it deserves. Mm. Yeah, I mean, do you always feel free to send me a playlist? Absolutely, why not? We'll, we'll, we'll sort something out some, sometime in the future. Yeah, definitely. Well, it was great to speak to you, and thank you so much again for inviting me on. Fabulous. Thank you, Melanie. Cheers, bye-bye. Thank you.